0: Let's stand together and sing hymn 52 before the throne of God above, verses 1 and 2.
1: Be seated. For Confession of Faith is the Apostles' Creed. I just uh, note I think most of you would have received my um, e letter this past week of noting how we're removing uh, one item out of there of Descendant to Hell because of the uh, difficult thing of trying to understand it, the differing opinions of it. And the purpose of a creed is for us all to recite something that we can understand that we can all agree together, and it unites us uh, in our faith. So with that in mind, let us uh, confess together uh, our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, and we'll begin by praying together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our Father, we do give you praise that you are the one who dwells in heaven. You are sitting upon your throne and you live in a high and a holy place. Sin cannot come before you. We give you praise that at your right hand is God the Son our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our High Priest. And He is there and He intercedes for us. He is there. He is claiming us for His own, that we may appear before You covered by His blood and now wear His robe of righteousness. And He says that we may now appear before You and we may now receive mercy and grace. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, whom you have sent to dwell within us. And as your Holy Spirit is doing that work of sanctification, we have been justified once and for all in Jesus Christ. We are being sanctified by your Holy Spirit. And that Spirit will continue that work in us until it is carried out to completion. Until that time that we shall appear before you, sinless indeed that we will appear before you, glorified. What a wondrous, wondrous thought this is. And that we who were not your people have been made your people. We who once your enemies have been made your children. We who were covered, who were filled with sin, may come before you as those who are spotless and righteous. How wondrous is this truth. Our Father, we pray that we now will hallow and honor your name. We pray that in our very worship view this morning, those of us in the sanctuary, those of us who are in our homes and listening in and watching in, we are still together, we have been united by your Holy Spirit. Together, may we honor and hallow your name. We pray, our Father, that the words we say will come truly from our hearts, that our hearts will be those that have been touched by your Spirit, that we are in keeping with your will. We pray for your kingdom to come, and we pray for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And should he return now, may we be found faithful in our service for the kingdom, or the day that you should call us home. May we be found faithful servants of yours. We pray that we may do so individually in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever you would have us to be. May we be found faithful in speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, in testifying of the gospel, in bearing witness of the change of the gospel by the way that we uh, love our neighbor. We pray, our Father, for our sister church, for whom we provide support in Brooklyn. We pray for our Resurrection Presbyterian in Brooklyn. And we pray for the work of that congregation and the work of that pastor, Chris Hildebrand. We pray for you to give to him all that wisdom and strength as he seeks to pastor his people when he cannot gather them together for worship. We pray that somehow that you would still use this congregation to be a light in its community in a community that is not welcoming to the gospel. And we pray that all the more that you would so work in them individually and as a body to show forth your your love and the goodness of the gospel of Christ. Our Father, we pray for uh, that you would provide for us our daily bread. Feed us this morning with the bread of your word, and the proclamation of your word. We pray for you to provide for us physically with our daily needs, provide for us with our health needs. And at this moment, we lift up before you our sister uh, Jan Harris, who's had a surgery uh, this morning uh, for a twisted colon, and pray that that will have been effective and for her healing now. We pray for protection of all of us from the virus. Give wisdom to all those who must make decisions, and particularly we pray for the medical uh, people who uh, protect us, who heal. We pray for them, that you'd give them strength and protection of them from the virus. We pray for our land, for your provision for our country. We are a country rife with uh, division and animosity. We pray, our Father, for peace that your Spirit can give to all, regardless of whether or not uh, you are confessed. We pray, Father, for those who are in the front line of protests, and particularly where there may be violence, great decisions they have to make momentarily. And we pray that you would give them that decision, give them the wisdom they need at that moment. We pray, our Father, for our leaders. We pray for wisdom for justice, compassion. We pray for a great understanding of what is right and wrong. We pray for we ourselves to being good citizens of our country, and that you would use us to be witnesses of the truth, witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we pray for you to forgive our debts, as we forgive our debtors. We pray that you would give us the same spirit that you possess, that you who are willing to, at great cost, bring forgiveness, to bring redemption for those who were your enemies. May we ourselves have that same spirit of mercy to love our enemies, as our Lord Jesus has told us to do, to uh, turn uh, the other cheek, uh, to walk that other mile, to, to give of our coat, whatever needs to be done to, sh- to show the same heart of our Father. We pray, our Father, for you to not lead us into temptation, but all the more to protect us from the temptations of the evil one, whoever seeks to lead us astray. Protect us from this world, whichever seeks to lure us with its pleasures to rile us with its fears. We pray that you would protect us from our own weak flesh, which so easily gives way, and which so easily gives way to both to pleasures and gives way to fears. And we make this prayer, understanding that to you is the kingdom. To you belongs all the power. To you is to be all of the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
0: revealed in all the universe, all things created by his hand and held together.
1: I uh, suppose that the uh, biggest breakthroughs in in stretching our own minds comes not from finding the answers to questions uh, that we have, but in coming up with questions that before never occurred to us. I suppose that's the case for science, for philosophies, and every other kind of endeavor, and it's I think really it's what makes the book of Hebrews unique. I mean, our author raises questions that most of us would never have considered to ask. and he does that in our passage uh, this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles in Hebrews seven, be looking at verses eleven through twenty eight or you also find it uh, the passage in an insert in the bulletin. Now, if perfection, had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. For under it, people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? And we've already known that Jesus is a priest. He, after all, he offered himself as as a sacrifice for our sins, but that he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek instead of after the order of Levi, and I would imagine that's not been on our radar, and we certainly have not spent much time contemplating on the necessity of Jesus being after that order of Melchizedek rather than Levi. But our author has given the matter great thought, and indeed, as he thinks through it, what rests on it is our attaining right standing before God. Now, that's what men hear about that perfection, that it has to be attainable. Okay. And yet, that perfection, and what he wants to note, it's not attainable under the law. That is the law of Moses, which is administered by the Levitical, the priest of Levi. So, a change is needed. And it's a change that involves the priesthood. And when the priesthood changes, then the law itself changes as well. Now he goes on here in verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now, one question here for us is how do we know that there's been a change in the priesthood? Well, it's because who now is the priest? It's Jesus. And Jesus, who is both king and priest, he is not from the tribe of Levi. So he goes on to say here in verse 13 and 14, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from whom no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So, there must have been a change in the priesthood. Because of Jesus, he's not descended from, uh, from Levi. He's descended from Judah. Something has changed. Now, he gives a second piece of evidence that's also significant here, perhaps more significant And here he's going to go back to Psalm 110, verse 4. It's, again, it's that only reference to Melchizedek. So look with me in verses 15 to 17. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, that is the genealogy, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a priest forever. By this evidence, and he's looking at again Psalm 110, he's saying here then he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek then, because... As you may recall, he made a big point about this just a few verses earlier. Well, Melchizedek had no genealogy. He has no, uh, nothing history said about him after that time of meeting with Abraham. So he is a priest forever. That's what Jesus is. So Jesus' priesthood is based not on you know, happening to descend from Levi, which he did not, but by possessing an indestructible life. And why does he use that particular term, indestructible? Well, we're going to see just a few verses later, a little bit further down. But Right now, he wants to give his attention back to the law of Moses. Because, Look with me in verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And again, that former commandment, that encovers all the law of Moses. And he's saying it is now set aside. And it's set aside because it did not achieve what most Jews thought it was supposed to achieve, which is to make someone right so that they could stand before God. It could draw near to God. Now, it's not that the law was bad. The problem lay in how it was being used. What the law can and what the law does do is to reveal what is right before God and what is wrong and what God considers wrong. It can reveal sin and so it does an excellent job in convicting us of our guilt before God. It can show us what a righteous life is like. And so it can point us to the way uh, that we ought to be living. But it cannot make us want to live a righteous life. And even if we should have some kind of desire to live a righteous life, it is powerless, the law is powerless to enable us to live that life. And so the hope to appear right before God, to draw near to him, is a hopeless one. If one depends upon the long to make them right before God. But there is a better hope that has been introduced. And that hope lies in the change of the priesthood. By which Jesus now, who is not of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek, he is made high priest. Now this then leads our author to add yet a third piece of evidence regarding this change and improvement of the, need of the new priesthood. Look with me in verse 20 and 21. It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this was made, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. So God Himself made an oath, swearing in Jesus as priest. And you might remember back in uh, chapter six when our oath—excuse t- uh, <coughs> me—when our author spoke of the oath that God made to Abraham. And you might remember, he makes a point of how sacred, how binding an oath by God is. God will not change his mind because God cannot change his mind. God cannot lie. And he notes here now that the priesthood of the Levites was not made with an oath. He's not saying that God, well, he did change his mind here. Now, he's just making the point that God never intended for the priesthood of of Levites to be eternal, to always be there. The eternal priesthood was reserved for his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to then note, with this guarantee of Jesus being the eternal priest, what that means for us. Verse 22, Thus this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, chapter 8, we'll talk about what that better covenant is. His interest here right now is being that guarantor. So, he's going to continue. Look with me in verses 23 to 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood Permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Guarantees are only as good as the person or the institution that makes them. Now, a business might give you a lifetime guarantee for its product. But if that business goes out of business, well, that guarantee is of no effect. An individual may promise, as long as I am alive, you can count on me. But the catch is, no one will always be alive. And once that person dies, the promise dies with them. But Jesus is the opposite. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost because he is with us to the end. We're able to draw near to God through Jesus without fear, without fear of bearing God's wrath for two indestructible facts. Number one, he has offered himself as the all sufficient sacrifice For our sins. Now he's going to develop that thought in chapters 9 and 10. And then the second fact is that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. He is up there in the heavenly holy of holies before God, before his throne, and we always, we will always have our high priest there for us and what a high priest he is. Look with me at the final verses. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So Jesus, let's go back over here, is a greater priest than the Levite priest. One, because of his eternal nature. Another one is because he was sworn in by God with an oath. But what really separates him from the others lies in his holy, sinless character. You know, before priests could carry out their daily function, and their daily function was to each day go and make sacrifices for the sins of the people. You would bring your sacrifice, the priest would offer it up before God. But the priests had to get up early in the morning because the first thing they needed to do was make sacrifices for themselves, for their own sins, for they were sinners like everyone else. Well, Jesus entered into this world holy, sinless, and he remained that way throughout his life, through all the sufferings, through all of the temptations, through the persecutions. And because he did, he was made perfect. Remember, our, our authors already talked about this. He was made a perfect Savior, and he was made a perfect high priest. He has never needed to make a sacrifice for himself, but he did make the one all-sufficient sacrifice for his people. He was the innocent, the unstained, the unblemished lamb, who was lifted up for his people. He is the holy high priest who is always heard by God as he always intercedes for his people. And so truly alone, he is the one who is fitted to be appointed by God to be sworn in to this office. All of this is what our author gained from understanding Jesus as being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's a lot that's in there. Now, what are practical lessons in it we can gain from this? Well, first of all, I want us to see what we learn about our attitude should be toward the law. I mean, he makes, our author makes a very shocking comment back there in verse 18 about the law. He referred to it as weak. In fact, he, he actually says it's useless. Now, how is it that this law is useless? How is it that it's weak? Well, it is weak and useless in uh, helping us to achieve a right standing before God. It cannot enhance our efforts to do what is right before God, and it certainly cannot remove our guilt. So then, what place does it have to for Christians? Well, think about it, first of all, how we first needed the law. It is the law that caused us to become Christians in the first place. It's the law that revealed God's will for us. It is, God, it is the law that revealed our duty. It's the law that then made us realize how sinful we are, uh, how we cannot carry out uh, that duty before God how helpless we are to change ourselves. It is the law, for example, that led us to see how we are so selfish and focused on ourselves. And so that even if we are convicted, and maybe we want to change, we find that we are unable to reform ourselves. It causes us to be like the alcoholic who finally must acknowledge that he's an alcoholic, and that he cannot change out of his mere willpower if he's going to have any kind of hope for breaking free of his addiction. Well, the law is what did that for us and caused us to turn to Jesus. But the law still has that role for us. What is the great danger for the Christian? The great danger for the Christian is self-righteousness. But I assure you that if we read over and over again the law, it keeps us alert to the sin that still besets us. You know, understand this. When we go to the New Testament, particularly we're reading the letters or we're reading Jesus' teachings. But when you read these teachings of the writers in the New Testament, like Paul and and Peter and our writer here, and you're saying, here's what you need to be doing, or stop doing that, All they're doing is they're taking the Old Testament law and they are applying it for how we are to live. And they're reminding us that we ourselves, even as Christians, can go astray. and we need to be brought back to what is right before God. Or you take Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now far from providing an alternative way to live and pushing the law aside, all Jesus is doing is he's taking the law and he's saying, If you really are going to follow it, you want to know how you really need to apply it. You want to know how to... Each time you call someone a fool, you just broke the law of murder. Each time you look at someone with lust, you have committed adultery. That's all he is doing is applying that law the way it ought to be applied. I can think of a couple... Two instances over the years of people saying... Men... You know, I uh, saying, you know, I keep the commandments. They got it, they pretty well got it taken down pat. For one of them, I read a couple examples from the Sermon on the Mountain that put him in the right place for that. And uh, but but let me just tell you this, if, if after reading Sermon on the Mountain, you're still thinking you, you pretty well got to get a handle on it. I'll give you a, a good tip to use. You go line, look up the Westminster Larger Catechism, and you go to the answers given for each of the commandments. And I assure you, I assure you, you will be humble and never be self-righteous after reading those things. So the law is effective for us to keep us from being becoming self-righteous. It impresses upon us always that we, uh, we're not going to find our hope in ourselves. But also then what the law does, thank God, is it points us to the way of hope. And it keeps us ever before us looking at the one who we need to keep looking. The law presents, remember, we talked about this, the types, the symbols that point to our Redeemer and how our redemption is achieved. The sacrificial system, for example, that whole thing in there with Leviticus and and Exodus, and all those things about what uh, we're supposed to be doing. It is a pageant for how atonement is made for sin. And so all those different sacrifices and all those animals for sin, especially the use of the lamb, they are pointing us to the lamb who has taken away our sin by his blood sacrifice. The law presents the, the system of priests, who offer the sacrifices for the people, who stand as mediators for them before God. And that supreme type of the the priest is that of the high priest, who alone may enter into the holy of holies. And there he stands before the presence of God, before the mercy seat. And he takes the blood of the, in that case, of the the goat, and he sprinkles it upon that seat signifying, symbolizing the atonement for our sins. And so we see in him the the role of our high priest, Jesus Christ, who has sacrificed himself, taken his sacrifice up into the heavenly holy of holies, and there he serves as our mediator. And so there, if we read the law, we're reading about Jesus. We're understanding more and more about what he's done for us. So that the law is pointing to what, it, what itself cannot give. It's pointing to the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. It is pointing to what is by far the better hope that we have in Jesus. And that's a good work of the law for us. Think of this. We do not now have the law... It is not a set of laws that we must master, first in understanding, trying to understand what all the laws are. And I'm told there's over 600 of them in there. And then you have the even harder work of trying to obey them. We no longer have a system of sacrifices where we've got to, you know, bring our animal, and hopefully we're, we're covering up all of our sins, and, and what if we commit that sin? We better get another sacrifice or the way that we do it today. Many times today, we, we, we sin, and we think, oh, i got to make up for it, and I've got to do this good work, or I better be in church on Sunday uh, this time, or whatever it is we think we've got to do. That is no longer a system for us. What we have, what the law tells us we have, is a Redeemer, who has paid all of our debts, who has made the once and for all sacrifice that is sufficient to cover all our sins. What the law instructs us that we have is a high priest who is indestructible. Nothing can happen to him. No one can kill him. No one can get the best of him. He is eternal. He is unstained. And he forever stands before God on our behalf. It's because of this high priest that we can affirm the words that are those great words there in Romans 8. Let me read them again. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that not indeed a better hope? He can never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. Because he can never die. He can never fail. And Satan may bring his charges against you. He may condemn you, but your Redeemer is your high priest, and he's at the right hand of God right now interceding for you. Can you have a better advocate? And so do not depend upon the law to draw you near to God. And Christians are in danger of doing this. Christians do this all the time. We keep coming to church, and the the preacher will tell you what you better be doing, what you need to do only thing that the law does is display your unworthiness, which you can't do on your own. But you put all your hope, you put all your dependence upon your high priest, who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And know this, that he is able to save you to the uttermost. He is able to complete your sanctification. He is able to draw you near to God. And we give you praise, our God, for our great High Priest, Jesus Christ, who is there at your right hand, even now interceding for us. We thank you that before the throne of God, uh, we have this great High Priest, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and continue and sing together before the throne of God above. Christ, and the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.